Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. I don't think we have a greater responsibility in the world than to get to know our being, to honor our being, to learn how to be in a supportive relationship with our being, because that impacts and affects so much more than any of our doing can. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. I am Mike Veldhuis, business owner of the Dutch IT company Nalta and podcaster from the Netherlands. I just love the Women in Tech podcast by the talented Esprit Devora. It's made with passion and creativity. It gives insight into the world of inspirational women from all around the globe. But most of all, it's fun to listen to. Esprit Devora truly is the girl who gets it done. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. Hi, I'm Esprit Deborah, host of the We Are LA Tech podcast, born and raised in LA. Together, we are unifying and celebrating the Los Angeles tech community. Join us. Half the people walked in and walked out. They didn't want anything to do with me. There is literally nothing that's standing in the way except yourself. The partner came to us and said, hey, I'll give you a million bucks right now. This is where I've always wanted to be, Los Angeles. Subscribe to We Are LA Tech wherever you get your podcasts. Personal Spot for today is about doing what truly feels right for us, no matter what we think we're supposed to be doing. And let me share what I mean by that. So for, for well, for years, I mean, forever, the podcast was an in-person podcast until the pandemic, right? And then it became a remote podcast. I felt that while I was in person, we never had video. We didn't shoot video. Very rarely did I record video. When we started recording remotely, I felt like I had to do video. Like, I felt like I didn't have the choice because that's just what you have to do, especially with the popularity of, like, now there being video podcasts that on YouTube, that it felt like, oh, I have to do video because I'll be left behind, and how can I not do video, and da-da-da-da. Just being really, really open with all of you, that last year I was on the verge of wanting to quit podcasting. I didn't think I was going to quit, but like I just was just absolutely exhausted. Luckily, I didn't quit. And instead, I asked myself the question, do I dislike podcasting or do I just like being on video all day long? 
And that was a struggle for me because I felt like, again, I had to be on video. So we had a team call and I shared with my team, like, you know, here, here's, how I, here's how I feel. And they essentially gave me permission not to be on video. But I was like, what if I don't have the memory of, of it? You know, that was really concerning me. And so one of my teammates said, like, you don't worry, like, just do five minutes of video, like, just get a little recording, little simit, so you feel like you have the memory, capture a screenshot photo, and then that's that. You, you have your little shot, and then do it. Well, I have been doing the podcast with only audio for, like, into the new year, and let me tell you what a more energizing, pleasurable experience it is for me. It was absolutely the video that was draining me. It was making me not enjoy my craft anymore, something that I absolutely love. It made me reconnect with what I enjoy so much about podcasting, which is the intimacy of audio, and to really appreciate the sounds just in my ears and not having so many other stimulations in my eyes, et cetera, you know? And it's just that reminder that just because it seems like we have to do something, we don't, like, who's making up those rules, you know? Who's making up the rules that we need to be on every single social media platform, et cetera, et cetera? And if video is draining in me, what's the point if I can't even create my craft because I'm so drained because I'm doing something I feel that I have to be doing because I, it's my interpretation of what I think is expected in the digital world, and then I end up quitting because I was so drained by it. What was the point of all that anyway? And so I'm really glad that I've moved back to audio, really stoked that uh, audio only, really stoked that, you know, Adam, my teammate, recommended to just capture that screenshot and a little, like, record a little video from my phone. It's just created an absolutely different recording experience, and and I feel like I'm so excited to get back into uh the podcast for this year. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye. Women in Tech podcast celebrating women in tech around the world. I'm particularly excited about our next guest, Natalie, coming at us from Boston. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I love the enthusiasm. Oh my gosh. I'm so, so just elated and happy to have you on. Can you share with us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. Well, I'll try to not give you my entire life story, but uh, hey, everyone, I'm Natalie, and I am the founder of a company called Happier and something that we are launching, which is called the Awesome Human Project. And what I do, which is not something I ever thought I would be doing because I spent my 20-year career in tech and finance, but what I do now is I teach people science-backed skills so they can struggle less, even when life is crappy and challenging, and thrive more and it's uh, kind of amazing that at 46, I just turned 46 a few days ago, I say it took me about 43, 44 years to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, and this is it. It's so interesting. I discovered you randomly, but then we turned out to both have tech in common, and I was so surprised that you come from a tech background. Before we get into just, you know, off the record, we were sharing, you know, a bit about my journey where I am right now and your journey where you are. Before we get into all that good stuff, can you share a little bit about your background in the tech space? I have spent, I don't know, a couple of decades. Let's just keep it short. Maybe less than a couple of decades. Um, no, I, I dig being the age that I am, actually. 
I, I love being in my 40s, so I'm not trying to sound younger. So I, um, let's see, my first job out of college was with McKinsey, uh, the big behemoth consulting company, where I started to get into some tech. And then I, um, this is a fun story to share. I left McKinsey right before the market crashed in 2001 to uh, run strategy at a startup that was a tech uh, plane and insurance space. I knew very little about startups, very little about insurance, but it was an exciting time. And then the startup crashed as many did. And I learned a tremendous amount, mostly that I didn't want to have anything to do with insurance, but I loved tech startups. And so from then on, I uh, Happier is my fifth startup. And Happier started out as a tech startup. We launched an app that is no longer around, but it had an amazing run for four years. And it was a mobile app that was all about helping people create a habit of gratitude by sharing uh, moments of gratitude and kindness throughout the day. We had 7 million moments shared in four years and really launched a movement around gratitude online. Before then, I spent time at Microsoft where I was part of the innovation lab that Microsoft had launched. Um, was all around creating innovative social experiences and it was uh, here on the East Coast running uh, experience and product for a tech startup here in Boston that was called Wear that eventually we sold to PayPal where I spent a year in that tech team. I think those are good highlights, uh, but all in all, 15 years of tech, mostly in startups with a few stints at Microsoft and PayPal. And just for, I, I love these companies. I think they're awesome. I am not a big company person. I'm definitely a startup girl. And if it's not too vulnerable, why doesn't Happier app exist anymore. I love that we're already talking about vulnerability, which is all just sharing truth, right? So two things happened. We ran and we raised venture money for the tech company from two awesome investors, uh, Venrock and Resolute Ventures, who I still count as my friends. That says a lot about them through all the transitions we've been through. Two things happened. One, I suffered a really debilitating uh, burnout and breakdown after two and a half years of running the company. It wasn't because of Happier, but it was definitely a catalyst. Um, I had been ignoring my own emotional and mental health for years, forever, ever since I came to the U.S. as a refugee and believed that the only thing that matters is success and hard work. I couldn't function anymore. So we had to put things on hold. That was a personal reason. And the business reason was that it was a really crappy business model to have a mobile app. And actually three reasons. The third reason was this reason I didn't actually realize until I started to heal from my burnout and actually doing a lot deeper work and research and understanding of what it actually means to be happier and struggle less. I realized that I don't think it's possible to achieve the kind of depth of learning and transcendence internally and transformation that I cared about helping people have through an app. And I said, hey, I'm gonna go a little bit of analog and I want to teach this stuff. So those are those are the three reasons. And I don't want to beat around the bush. It was super sad to put it to sleep. We had an unbelievable community of hundreds of thousands of users. I mean, you you know, it was written up in every press outlet. Um, many apps kind of were launched after to do similar things. And, you know, we had this unbelievable community of people for whom it was their lifeline of a place of gratitude and positive energy in, on social media. So it was a really tough decision, but I think it was the absolute right one. And in fact, I probably waited a year too long, not willing to face the facts mm -hmm. and keeping it around. In there. I understand waiting and not wanting to face it. What I find really interesting about what you shared, and it's, it's just like, man, it's so true for our world is here you are building a happier app when you're completely unhappy. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. It's um, so, you know, I do a ton of speaking now. I travel all over the world. I work with a lot of companies and leaders and I teach them these emotional fitness skills. So I do a ton of speaking. And what I um, often share, I, I always share my personal story when I'm on stage or virtual stage these days, because I think it's really important. That is to me how I teach through what I learn myself. I mean, I've done a ton of research and stuff, but one of the things I share, so I did a TEDx talk in 2013, um, when we, it was about six months after we launched and, you know, the app was growing and it was this amazing moment. My parents were in the audience. It was a huge TEDx here in Boston. And I got to share the story of how I went from coming to the U.S. as a refugee, which I did from Russia when I was a teenager, how I went and had this huge career and now was launching this company that was helping hundreds of thousands of people live happier lives. And, you know, when I share that and I share the photos, it was a you know, it's like, oh my God, what could get better, you know, in life? And my parents were there and my husband and my daughter it was this seemingly like the pinnacle of the moment, right? Of the journey. And then what I tell people is what no one, well, I, I say what I thought no one knew, but everyone suspected was I was nearing the depths of the worst burnout that would then swallow me whole for the next two years. I actually don't remember anything that happened after the TED Talk. I know that there was a, I was a closing talk. I know that there was a line of people for four hours who wanted to talk to me and my parents and shake their hands, but I only know this from stories. Like I was really at a point then, I was blacking out a lot. Um, I really wasn't sleeping. I was not eating or eating too much. I, I really had no, it was really close to the bottom. And yeah, here I was, the founder of a company called Happier, and I was at the bottom of the barrel. And it took a long time, like I don't want to appear as some hero. It took a long time for me to acknowledge it. It took a long time for me to accept it. I had so much shame around it, like what a fraud I was. Um, and then it took me a really long time to actually come clean about it and not just come clean to my friends or people I knew work-wise, but I remember it was two years after that I wrote an email to the Happier community, you know, 100,000 plus people telling them this is what's going on. And I was so afraid because again, I thought I was this fraud. And I cannot tell you the amount of love that came back. And I call it love. There's no other word for it. Not romantic love, but just love and embrace. And the two things that people said, and this is just, I share this because so many of us are afraid to share our true struggles. Two things people said. One, wow, you sharing that you are struggling and you are the CEO of Happier, it gives me permission to actually come out and share some of mine. And two people said, you know, I just don't feel alone anymore. And that is everything. And so, um, yeah, that's a little bit of that. It was, I mean, it's the, I don't know how much more of a contrast you can have of a CEO of Happier who was burning out. You know, I was listening to this book, The Psychology of Money, and they were talking about predicting future problems and how you can't always predict future problems. And one of the examples of a future problem was, in one of the situations this 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 author worked with in his firm, the founder of the company had a mental breakdown. Like it's it's so normal. <laughs> it's so normal in our industry to look perfect and not it's just it's so normal. <laughs> 
it's expected, right? I cannot tell you when I first started to come out about what was going on and, you know, that I wrote my first book, Happier Now, where I shared some of the story of what happened. And there was, you know, a lot of press and articles and interviews. I cannot tell you how many entrepreneurs I heard from, people I didn't know, kind of these, I call them like the quiet conversation, secret emails, who told me this is how they felt or they were close to that point. And they still believed that they could carry on and they still believe that people didn't know. And this people didn't know thing, I actually think is one of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves because in retrospect, did people know the extent of how bad things were? No, because you know that's really personal. I mean, my husband knew, but that's it. But in retrospect, it was like a year before I hit bottom where people started to ask me if I was okay or if they could help. Like I remember, you know, part of it was I was leading the startup team. And I'm, by the way, I created a really dysfunctional culture. I just want to really raise my hand because I was pretending all the time. They knew something was going on, but I wouldn't acknowledge it. So they started to pretend and not tell me stuff. So I, there, it was apparent to everyone because here's the thing about us human beings. We are so good at sensing each other's feelings because it's primal. We need to sense each other's feelings to determine if we're safe or in danger. Actually, in my new book, I talk about we all have what I call an emotional whiteboard and it's right in front of us. And people we interact with, they immediately sense, like you know this, you walk into the room and there's two people in there. You can feel the energy, you can feel their emotions, right? And so the thing about the emotional whiteboard though, other people see it through kind of fuzzy glasses so they can sense something is off, but they don't exactly know what. And this is the kind of stress I was causing for everyone. But again, this pretending thing, do you know it actually has a name? Pretending to feel good when you don't, it's called surface acting. Term in psychology, like a lot of people in caregiving professions suffer from it, like nurses and doctors and customer service representatives and retail clerks, because there's this expectation of, you know, a happy smile, like the customer is yelling at me and I'm supposed to look back and say, oh, let me help you with that, you know? And so, uh, but we all play with it. Leaders is a huge problem. Surface acting is a form of emotional labor. It takes a tremendous amount of emotional and mental energy for our brains to handle the dissonance between our pretending and what the actual feeling is. It's one of the leading causes of burnout that I try to talk about as much as I can because burnout is not just about too much work. <laughs> That's actually not even the leading cause. It's about over-identifying with our jobs, pretending to feel good when we don't. And so all of the surface acting that I was doing was draining my own energy, was making things worse. It also makes you feel really alone because if you're pretending, you can't actually have any kind of human connection. And as human beings, we cannot function without feeling connected. And I was ruining the culture for the team. I was causing my team all the struggle because they knew I was lying, but I wouldn't acknowledge it. And I just like, if there is one thing that we could all get through, and this is, you know, I try to teach this now. I work with so many different people and companies and leaders like... If we could just recognize that when we share our challenges, it is not a weakness, it is not a flaw, nobody expects otherwise, that it actually gives us an opportunity to move forward with less struggle. Wow. 
on the point of perfection, I believe in in having really healthy relationships. And one of the ways I, I do that is open communication with my friends. And there's this one entrepreneur slash friend that I really um, admire. This word has a negative connotation, but I didn't mean it in, I don't mean it in a negative way. I was really jealous of her, but not jealous as in like, I don't want her to have what she has. I want her to have everything she has. I just wanted it too, you know? And so I was really jealous of her. So I decided I had this energy of jealousy and I was like, I'm just going to let her know. I'm going to tell her. So I said, hey, is there some point you have time to speak? There's something I'd like to talk to you about. So I shared with her like that I'm very jealous of of the success and I feel like I'm not – I'm not enough. Where have I gone wrong in my career not to have the same success, you know? And she's like, that's crazy, Esprit. I am on the point of burnout. I am don't actually have it all together. And I see you as skyrocketing and having it all together. I had no idea, like, <laughs> you know? And it was weird, both of us seeing the, for lack of a better word, facade of one another without knowing the underlying struggle. Well, you know what I want to tell you? The first thing I want to tell you is how incredibly courageous of you it is to tell her that. I think that takes so much She's courage. She's an incredible courage person. Courage is a quality. Yeah. Well, she might be. That's awesome. But so are you because, you know, in my new book, I talk a lot about courage and that it takes courage not just to be vulnerable, to actually have the inner awareness of our thoughts and our emotions um, to get honest with ourselves. So I think it's just tremendous amount of courage that you showed like leading with that. And what an amazing, even deeper, right, moment of connection that you created with her. I mean, we trusted one another before, but I think our level of trust is is a hundred percent deeper. Like, yes, yeah. I, I feel and emotional this is what even saying that out loud. I feel, I feel <laughs> it so. It's like vibrating. I through hear me. it. Yeah, I hear it. But that's that's our potential, right? Like, this is this is the place where we can get to. We can actually have more genuine trust between each other, more deeper connection. We can feel less alone. And what it requires is for us to take off the mask, by the way, which we aren't really wearing that well anyway. His name is uh, author and thinker Parker Palmer. He's actually a Quaker author. And I remember reading something from him where he was talking about how when we're born, we're just a person. I'm Natalie, Desiree, like Samantha, Sam, whoever. And then as we go through life, we start to play these roles. And um, uh, I'm a daughter, I'm a teacher, I'm a mom, I'm a friend, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a CEO, I'm a leader, I'm an employee. And we start to wear these different masks. And we think that we try to kind of manage those different roles, right? Like, well, as a leader, I shouldn't let people know I'm struggling. Okay, my friend thinks this. And he's, he talks about how difficult that fragmentation of our true selves is, because really we are just one self, not just we individually are one self. We are all actually connected and we can talk about this metaphysically or psychologically. We all connect, our emotions are contagious. And I love the way he was talking about that, that it's just about having the skills, because it is a skill and the courage to take off these masks and just show up as this is one person, I'm Natalie. 
and this is how I am. And I call it the potential because to me, that's the beautiful potential that we all have, not just for ourselves, but for each other. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's really hard to do because of our little child fearful brain in our head who is telling us, no, 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 you're going to be rejected if you tell them about your struggle. People are going to think you're weak, you're stupid, you're pathetic. You know, that's a little brain. I make a choice to lead in my company with vulnerability. And um, I'll ask my team, like, I hope that I build a culture where um, they feel that they can be safely honest with me. You know, I can never know 100 percent, but but that's my hope anyway. And I'll say, are you comfortable with my vulnerability? Like, how does it make you feel? I ask all of them and all of them have, have said that they really appreciate it. It's really unique. And they also said something really interesting, which was they think it's only possible because I have a small team, whereas in a big company, in a big company, it wouldn't work to lead vulnerably. And I, I thought that was fascinating. And it also made me feel like, OK, well, then I never want a super big company <laughs> because I really <laughs> like leading vulnerably. <laughs> you know what? I work a lot of my work now, probably about, I don't know. I'd say half of my work is with leaders. I do a leadership um, training for women every year. It's virtual. I do this program. We call it Elevating Women Leaders, where I take women leaders on a year-long virtual program with me. I do a leadership program for everyone. And then my the other half of my work is I work with teams and companies, many really big companies, you know, like Google and Facebook and Dell and those guys. I'm in suspense, and you know Natalie. <laughs> I want you to tell your team that they're not quite right. I have met many leaders who lead with authenticity and openness in really huge companies, including men. I just want to say this because I think there is this, I don't know if I'm allowed to say bullshit, but I'm going to say it. Okay. There's this bullshit idea out there that men don't like embrace their emotions or don't want to be open or vulnerable. It's complete bullshit. I cannot tell you how many men entrepreneurs or leaders tell me like, I, I would love to be more open, but I feel like there's this expectation that I'm a guy and I shouldn't do it. So I have plenty of experience with leaders who lead really, really big teams in really, really big companies that who are open and authentic. And you can tell, even before I meet them, I can tell it by, by their team members when I interact, because as you see in your team, what the leader does is reflected in everyone else. Because for better or worse, as a leader, you set the tone. You know, it's really all goes back to kind of primal instincts and biology. If someone has a the high position in a hierarchy, everyone else is going to look to that person for what's the acceptable norm, right? Because they don't want to be thrown out of the tribe, right? We really are all, we just need to understand how tribal our instincts are. And so the leader really does have to set the tone, which is why in my experience, before I went through what I went through, I did not create an open culture. I did not have psychological safety on my team because I didn't model it. But there are many leaders that I've had the privilege of working with who do lead that way. It is possible. Is it possible? Because I don't want to invade anyone's privacy. Do you have any company that comes to mind that we can maybe explore in Cyberstock? Uh, there's a couple that come to mind. Um, I'll tell you uh, a couple there. So I've done a lot of work with Capital One, which Get is um, out of town. an enormous company. First of all, I'm where, a Capital One user, so perfect example. Well, there you go. <laughs> I've done a lot of work with Capital One. And you know, I'm not going to name their names because these sessions that I do with them are private. But 
Um, this is a company where I was knocked off my chair with one of the male leaders of an enormous division started our, I was giving a talk on, you know, how to struggle less through challenges, opened up by talking about something incredibly vulnerable. And then basically, as I did the series of workshops with his team, they were like, this is how he is. It wasn't just for show for you. And this person manages, you know, 10,000 people. You know, he doesn't, like, it's a huge team. I can tell you that Dell has uh, leaders. We work a lot with the Dell finance side, the CFO organization that I've been blown away at their openness and warmth, not just vulnerability, but warmth. And so it is possible. I don't think it's about the size. I really do think it's about... Um, the leader doing the internal work to be able to do it. I think this is like one of my, you know, there's a whole chapter on leadership in my new book. Um, I have an article coming out about this in Harvard Business Review, where when we talk about leadership, including servant leadership, right? Like it's become a really catchy idea, like servant leadership. Servant leadership. Wait, I don't want to move so fast past you saying Servant leadership. Can you, before you <laughs> the move on- The most misunderstood concept. Yeah, before you move on, can you tell us what is servant leadership? Well, yes. So uh, I think it's something we've all heard and it's actually a term that was created or you know first popularized in our culture in the 70s by Robert Greenleaf. And there's an essay that he wrote that you can look up and um, I think you can even like listen to it on Audible and download. But um, I never look at the original until I was working on the leadership chapter in my book. And my whole point was that I was articulating that I always adopted this idea that servant leadership meant martyr leadership. You know, like this idea um, Simon Sinek talks about a lot, like leaders eat last. It actually comes from the military because in the military leaders eat last. So I, and many leaders that I know, took that to an extreme where I thought that how I felt didn't matter, my mental health, my emotional health, like it just didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was my team and our goals and trying to reach those. And it was one of the biggest reasons that I burnt out. And I, as I was working on this, I was like, let me go read the essay. Let me actually go to the source. And do you know that Robert Greenleaf doesn't say that you have to sacrifice for your team. He talks about servant leaders as those who help people they lead find greater well-being, uh, bring out their inner wisdom, become their true potential. And the thing we have to realize that before we can help other people do that, we have to help ourselves do that because I was a really shitty leader when I ignored my own inner self, my own emotional self. I cared a lot about my team, a lot. I don't think you could have cared more, but it didn't matter because my being was in such an awful place. I had no emotional awareness. I had no self-compassion. I had no awareness of anything. You cannot give what you don't have is the sentence I say the most. It's a sentence I say in every talk and every interview. I say it to myself 10 times a day. You cannot give what you don't have. And if you think you can, you can't. It's This was the lie that I told myself. And so to me, the first greatest responsibility of any leader is what I talk about is to strengthen their emotional fitness, which I define as creating a more supportive relationship with yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, and other people. Because we have to realize that we impact people with our being, with our energy, with our emotions, before we utter a word, before we send an email, before we take an action. And as leaders, we must take responsibility for our inner environment 
because it's the only way that we can truly bring out the best in others. hundred percent. My word for, um, oh, this is really resonating with me. My word for 2022 is self-love. I tend to operate from a, a place of like a, like my, my cup's depleted instead of from a place of overflow. And um, in effort to self-love, I, I've taken uh, a month to be quiet, to, to not take any meetings, to, to just stay for the most part offline or as, as like interactive as I want to be within a place that I feel safe and not depleted. And in this discovery, I'm in this month right now, you just happened to sneak in because I was really excited to talk to you. But in this month right now, what I've learned about myself in relation to you talking about giving is I've learned that when I give from a a place where I don't authentically want to be giving because I'm operating from a depleted state, I start to feel resentful. And so I discovered that and I've been working through that. And then the next step that I discovered is that without being a giver, or you could also call it a people pleaser, I don't know who I am. And so therefore, am I giving to fuel my own identity, or am I giving from a place of generosity? Who I'd like to be is a person who is giving from a place of generosity and from a cup that is overflowing with the space to give. I think that's such a beautiful way to say it, and I love that you're saying this because I, again, didn't have any awareness of this for most of my life, but the reality for all of us is that we have an energy reservoir, right? We're not unlimited. We're not, none of us are superhumans. That's actually like one of my pet peeves. Can everybody please stop calling each other superwomen, superhuman? Like I'm not a superwoman. I'm a, I'm a human being, which means I have a limited energy reservoir. Every day you have, a, you start your day with a limited amount of emotional, mental, and physical energy and everything you do takes energy. So when the reservoir gets empty or close to empty, you, there isn't much to give. And we all know that feeling, right? That's why, you know, in my new book, I talk about this idea of daily burnout. We think of burnout as what I went through, right? This all-encompassing, life-stopping thing. But many more of us are dealing with daily burnout. I think we all know that feeling, right? Of just being on empty at the end of the day, like I got nothing else to give. And that recognition that when you're in that place, the only responsible thing to do and the only loving thing to do, not just for yourself, but for others is to refuel. Um, that's where we have to fight with the fear in the brain because the fear is, oh, if I don't do more, I won't achieve enough. People won't like me. If I don't say yes to this person, even though I'm, I'm, I'm on empty, they're going to reject me. I'm going to be alone. So to me, what you're talking that's about- That's everything is, I'm going through. <laughs> So that to me, it's either we do it from love or fear. It's really that simple. When we do things from fear, they never really quite land and they don't actually bring the results or the impact that we want. And it's again, I'm not sharing anything theoretical. I've had to learn this firsthand. This is like such a funny thing to say. I'm going to say it. <laughs> this is silly, but it's such a great example. So when I like write a social post <laughs> on Twitter, Instagram or whatever, so I'm on this. Instagram most yeah. of the time, like Twitter is really hard for me. Like I actually, when I actually, it's a good thing to say, cause you and I met on Twitter, which is kind of amazing. Cause I hate Twitter. When I come to Twitter, I feel like I'm a naked little girl and I'm trying to think of something smart to say. I just want to say this out loud. Like I realize that's like my little brain. I need to get through that. But Instagram is a place I love. I actually have a really meaningful community there. Like I've I just love it. I'm also an artist, so I follow a lot of artists. Anyway, here's my little example. 
When I do a post on Instagram, I can tell you before I press go or whatever post, if it's going to resonate or not. Do you know how I know? I know because if I'm doing it from love, just from, and love is not romantic love. It's just like, I'm really excited to share something, or I really think this will help. It's going to fly. It can be the ugliest shit photo ever, and it's going to fly. If I am in any place of I'm doing this post because I I think I should, or this is probably the right thing to say, like it's from fear, it's it's gonna it's gonna fall through. I can tell this for the emails that I send. I because the thing again to recognize, and this again was really hard for me as someone who, you know, I grew up in a very cerebral way. My father is a physics PhD. I was a total geek. I still am. I love like science, but in a Western world, we're so limited to just like very cerebral um, understanding of the world. But if we if we just step back a little bit, and this is what the wise, the wisdom traditions of the East have been telling us, and now modern physics is showing us, we all are connected. And so when you do something from fear, other people can feel it. That's why it doesn't land. When you do it from love, it that energy is imbuing into all your efforts. That's why it works. I, I feel this with my art. I feel this with my books. I feel this in every way. By the way, knowing it doesn't mean that I don't think, do things out of fear. It's ongoing work, right? You know, but I, it's such a powerful awareness. And so I actually do this sometimes, like legit, I'll stop myself and be like, okay, like stop. Are you doing this post because like, it's just something you're excited to share? Or are you doing it out of fear of like, you need to sound better or whatever? And it's really helpful to just ask yourself. And this idea of love and fear, I didn't create it. If you go back to the wisdom of the yogis and the Buddhists, like they talk about this in their own words, I think it's one of the most powerful things to recognize. And that's why, you know, I also come from, um, uh, you know, I'm a Russian Jew. So there's a lot of tradition in my family and my roots around like, you know, struggle and you join people and struggle and obligation and all that kind of stuff. But all of those things are just from fear. And again, I'm not saying any of this is simple, but just that awareness, am I doing this from love, which means excitement, commitment to my purpose, wanting to help someone, just wanting to explore something? Or am I doing it from fear of how people will judge me, of not being enough, not being good enough? Just that awareness is so powerful. I think this is just such an important conversation to have. You know, so many people listening are leaders and and sometimes we feel alone in that journey. Um, one of the proudest compliments I got about um, my Los Angeles company, um, We Are LA Tech, I have this thing called the We Are LA Tech Experience Club. And I had a member in the club who was also part of these like fancy accelerators. And he said to me, I think We Are LA Tech Club is the best thing ever. I'm like, how can you think we Are Like Tech Club is better than the fancy accelerator you're a part of, you know? And um, he said, I said, you have access to all the top investors in your accelerator. How is it even possible you value this more? He said, because in We Are LA Tech, I can be vulnerable. And in the, for the other one, I always have to look like I'm perfect and have it all together. Mm. So I can't actually reach out compliment. to the investors because mm. I need to be perfect, so I can't actually ask for the help that I need because I, there's no space for me not to already just know all the answers. What a powerful testament to what you do and the culture you've built and the the 
the openness. And I just want to say something investors about investors. So I write about this in my first book, Happier Now, where the person who, you know, when I was burning out, you and I were chatting about this before, when I was burning out, it was obvious to everyone I was not okay, but I was just pretending that everything was amazing. Like if you Google photos of me from 10 years ago, you'll get what I call the stock image of a confident leader, you know, like <laughs> the fake smile, the crossed arms, the power yeah. pose, you know, and I was bullshitting myself thinking that I could just pretend. I also thought that's what people expected. But, um, that, you know, so a lot of people started asking me if I was okay, you know, if they could help. But the person who was one of the most instrumental people in my getting help was one of my investors. And I do want to call him out by name, Mike Hirschland. He runs a fund called Resolute Ventures. Um, he's incredible. He's a really successful early stage fund. But he, um, you know, we were friends um, and he'd gone through something difficult. So there was a little bit of that openness in me, I think. But I, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't let on, but obviously he could tell. And I recount this incident in the book where we, you know, had one of our like little coffee meetings and we were sitting outside. It was October. And, you know, I was going on and on and on. Everything was collapsing, but I, including the business, but I wasn't going to acknowledge any of it, right? Shame. And he just stopped me and he said, I need you to stop talking. And I was like, what? And he's like, you are not okay and I need you to get help. And until you do that, I am not gonna talk to you about the business. And to me, this just sounded like blah, 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 whatever. Um, but he was really insistent. And you know, he had this position of power because he wasn't just a friend, he was an investor. And he gave me this name of this woman, I'll use her first name, Janet, who became my spiritual teacher for three years after, but at the time, thank God she never used the word spiritual because I wasn't open to that because that's just for sissies and stupid people. That's like, yeah, total <laughs> woo-woo. You know, I was, you know, smart at a really high IQ, all that bullshit. So he gave me her card and he said, you have to go see her before I talk to you again. And I, I walked away. I was like, this is ridiculous. And for a couple of weeks after I tried to like, you know, I would ping him and I told myself the story of like, wow, he's being ridiculous, you know, all the self like... And eventually I had to break down and go see this woman and it kind of began my journey to realize I was really broken and putting my life on hold, telling my investors I had to like, we had to let go of the team, I had to stop, all that kind of stuff. But I do want to, you know, I, I do want to give Mike the shout out and uh, because there are these incredible investors who um, are open and who have these relationships and I'm forever grateful to him. So I do want to give a shout out. There are investors who are like that. Wow. That's so cool. And if you want one, go to my personal Resolute Ventures and tell them I said I'm you. so I'm so glad that you said that for I mean, just for so many reasons. It's so incredible. And so and now you've you have your programs and you've been writing books. Can you tell us about the books that you've been writing? Yes. Um, I seem to not be able to stop. <laughs> Um, so my first book, which is technically not my first book, I had this whole previous life when I was a venture capital investor 15 years ago. I also started a publishing company with my husband and wrote lots of books, but we'll just leave that in the previous <laughs> life. I just think it's funny to say. And I have spent five years as a VC. I just need to <laughs> say No, I'm that. glad um, you did. It's like it's funny because in our interview, there's just so much to cover with you. And I'm just so for as like as the as the 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 show host or whatever, it's I'm just like, what for all our wonderful people and listening, what would like 
truly extraordinarily transformed their life and and like this was worth their time in such a deep meaningful way and so i feel like the direction of our conversation is just so much more like emergency mode important than learning about why you discovered to like become a vet or why why you became interested in venture capital and da, 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 you know it's like we could go that oh, way yeah. but well, yeah that's a I am I might tell that story of how I got a job in venture capital because it speaks to vulnerability but so that's a, but that's a separate thing so the book so um happier now uh, came out in 2018 and the subtitle is how to stop chasing perfection and embrace everyday moments even the difficult ones um I'm, uh, yeah, it was, I wrote it three years out from kind of the bottom and I'm incredibly proud of that book. It's helped a tremendous number of people. It actually sold more during the pandemic than it has sold like during all the years before, um, because I think we need this. And then my next book, um, is coming out. Which is how I discovered you, which is, well, I didn't discover you through the book. I discovered you and then found your book and then got the book and and then we kept chatting and yes i'm so excited for it and here we are <laughs> yes so my next book it's called the awesome human project to break free from daily burnout struggle less and thrive more in work and life and it's coming out in four weeks and i truly it is the most courageous piece of work i've ever created it's the most honest and it is all about learning these skills to struggle less to create this more supportive relationship with our thoughts and emotions so that we can actually unleash this amazing capacity that I think we all have. And so it's coming out in four weeks. I can't believe it. And it was just a real experience writing it during the pandemic. And I was teaching everything I was writing in real time because I did like 270 talks and workshops or something like that. Like I said, I'm a Russian Jew. Nowhere in my background is any kind of optimism or self-confidence. Like people think I'm a confident person and I'm just not. I try to be really open about that, but I have a lot of confidence, not in myself, but in the greater purpose of this book. So I say it with that. I think it is the the book we all, the world needs right now. So I'm really, really excited that it's coming out and the books are connected. I mean, you can read each one separately, but in this book, The Awesome Human Project, I'm starting at struggle. I'm, I really went deep to a place of how to help us break free from the constant struggle that many of us are in. Um, and I think I only could do that with more time since my burnout. Like I needed more time to really get more honest about it. And I know I need it. I'm so I'm so thrilled to read it. I, I can't wait. That transition from being fully in tech, in venture capital, in building and running and just fully in tech driven to becoming an author how like my dream since <laughs> i was a little girl is to be an author i also built the first action sports company and love being creative through technology but my dream is to be an author it's something i've never talked about or at least rarely talk about and i've been working on my book for a few years now and i'm struggling with the identity of losing my identity as a person in tech and not and in my writing groups say, Esprit, you could have a dual identity. You could be in tech and be an author. And something, I just feel some sort of block in like afraid of losing my something into my notoriety in tech, something in tech, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
I love that you're sharing this. So first of all, I cannot wait to talk to you more about your book um, and we can do this off air, but I do want to tell you that I would love to talk to you about it and help you move through that. But I also love what you just said because I've absolutely gone through that, right? I had this identity in tech. I did. I was part of some failed startups and then I was part of some successful startups and, you know, uh, built this app that was doing a lot of good in the world and getting a lot of press and all that kind of stuff. And I'd raised venture money and all that kind of good stuff. So for me, the transition, not just to be an author, but to be a teacher, to embrace this idea that actually I'm a teacher. And I, you know, like people call me a motivational speaker. And I was like, oh my God, that's terrible. And I'm not a motivational speaker. I tell everyone I'm an activational speaker. I teach mm, skills. I so I don't that. care about motivating you. I just love to activate wow. you to practice. Activational speaker. But I really, I've never heard that. I love yeah. that term. Oh, I made it up. Yeah. That's thank great. you. So, but it was a huge uh, thing for me. So I really relate. And I hope what I'm going to say to you is empowering because it just, as you were talking, like these are the words that came to me. Um, this identity that you think you have, no one cares about. Nobody gives a shit because no one thinks about it but your scared brain. It doesn't exist. Nobody out there is sitting around going, wow, you know, she's a, she's a tech person. Like that is really what I value about her is her tech identity. Not a single human being ever. You know what they value? You your ideas, your fuel, your inspiration, your vulnerability, your authenticity, that is what people care about. They don't give a crap whether it's coming out in an app, in tech, in a painting, in a photo, in a book, in a recipe. Nobody cares but our little brain. No one cares. It doesn't exist outside of your brain. When you ask people, and I really relate to this both from like that transition, but also I know you and I have talked about it. I'm, I also am like in the process of coming out as an artist. I'm also an artist and I've been painting since I burnt out. I never did it before, but I've been painting up a storm. I'm launching my first NFT collection and I'm just like, like, I cannot tell you, but I, this is just, I cannot tell you how many times I, I'm, I'm going to actually, I've never said this out loud. How many times I've put something on Twitter about my NFT collection and deleted it. Because I was like, what, hold on a second, but I'm not really part of that community. What are they going to think of me? But what is my, it's such bull and it's just in my head. No one is sitting out there and going, you know, Natalie, her identity is a teacher of emotional fitness skill. No one, the people, no one does that. Think about all the people in your life. Do you spend an ounce of yourself ever thinking about their identities ever? No, you don't. Absolutely. You never do. I don't know you well enough, but I can tell you, you never do. We don't sit around and do that. So it only exists in our minds. And this is the work is to break through those absolute fake mental constructs. You are not a tech person. You are not an author. You are not a leader. You're a person. You are you and you have things to contribute. So if writing a book pulls at you, yeah, like if I removed podcast or speaker, like all these labels that I, I have. Those are awesome things you do, but maybe you're also good at juggling. Maybe you make really good, I don't know, enchiladas. I don't know. To me, 
this is what I'm really working on right now. And again, I love that you brought it up. Like I'm working with it. I truly am coming out as an artist. Like we just launched my new website, nataliecogan.com. I've never had a website with my name on it. There's an art section on it that has a link to my NFT website that's launching in a couple of weeks. Like that's a huge move for me because whoa, like my brain is like, hold on. What if you suck? What if you fail? Hold on. You're now this like really successful speaker and author. Like you've, you've busted your butt to build this great successful like reputation and business. What are you doing with this stuff? Like that exists only in our minds. And I think that the greatest work that we can do in our lives is to do this internal work to move past these mental blocks and the way to do that. Like, so I'll give you, this is what I do because, you know, I love Nike, but the whole just do it thing just doesn't work for me because the fear is really strong. So I'm just not a believer in just do it. What really works is to stop thinking about yourself so much. And what I mean by that is focus on your bigger why. Focus on how writing this book can help someone else. How can it contribute? How can it help you reach this goal that you've had since you were a little girl? And shifting into what this is what's called like a pro-social mindset. We're all at our core pro-social. We want to contribute to others. This is what helps us transcend that bullshit and that fear because you're literally like in a very tactical way, giving your brain something else to focus on. And so when I get into that place, what I say to myself is, I, 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 I am afraid what people are going to think. I, no, it's not about that. How does doing this thing, how does like launching this art collection or writing this piece of content, whatever it is, how can I help another person? How does it contribute to something bigger than you? And you can hear it in my voice. As soon as you shift into that, all that little bullshit falls away. Yeah, it makes me think of the book, which I, I would be, I feel like you've probably read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Of course. Yeah, of and, course. It's, one of, it's on my sacred bookshelf. Oh, yeah, it's, it's about how this man survived the Holocaust. And essentially, he survived the Holocaust by living for uh, a meaning larger than his life himself, like a purpose larger than himself. This is extraordinary, Natalie. It's amazing. You said you had a fun a fun venture capitalist, how you discovered venture capital in the tech world. I would love to hear it. I do. It is a fun story. So um, this was, let's see, I was of a bright age of, I'm going to say 22. And I was part of this little startup in New York City, this founder and me and like one other person. And we had this idea to create um, a platform, basically interoperability platform for eBooks. Now at the time, you know, this is when Palm Pilots were around. And at the time there were like literally like 10 books, 10 eBooks in the world. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it was a tiny market. So anyway, here we were and, you know, we were going out to raise money. So we went to meet this firm, Hudson Ventures in New York and literally was like him, me and this other guy. And it came time to talk about, you know, I was running business development, which I'm making like quotation marks. Like, I don't think I could tell you what business development was. Basically, I was hustling for business. Okay. But, you know, I like the title. So I put up my slides and it has all these like nice logos of all the publishers, all the big publishers. And I'm like, yeah, these are all our publishing partners. And I said, they're 150% behind us. They're so enthusiastic. And we're in a, this like very intimidating conference room and there's like five of these venture capital guys that all look identical. You know, they're sitting there with their arms crossed. And as soon as I said, our publishing partners are 150% behind us, one of them literally reaches over and closes my laptop and looks at me and he goes, listen, I don't understand how 
anyone can be more than 100% behind you. It doesn't make any sense. Like he was being a total ass, okay? So I actually, every you know those moments, like everything went slow motion. I can see the CEO to my left, like going, you know, red, white, red, white in the face of like, oh my God, you little girl, what did you just do? Like, all I wanted to do was run away. Let's just own it. But I was like, okay, I have two choices. I can cry, which is what I really want to do because this guy's just giving me a hard time. Or I can just like, I didn't think this consciously, obviously. I can just be myself. And I'm pretty funny. Like, it's actually something I'm very proud of. My husband and I have a competition. We've been together for 25 years. I'm way funnier. I just want to say this on the air. Um, uh, yeah, so I just got it. So I said to him, listen, Jay was his name. Jay, um, he's actually passed away um, a couple of years ago. I said, Jay, here's the deal. I came to this country as a refugee and English was not my first language. And when I was learning English, everyone told me that Americans love cliches. So I feel like this is a cliche, 150% behind you, but I'm going to make you a deal. I will never say this again if you invest in the company. Finally, he cracked a smile, like, because he was shitting me, you know, he cracked a smile, everyone laughed, whatever. Okay. So we got past the moment. We're walking out of the meeting, you know, uh, out of the building. And my cell phone rings. It was a flip Ericsson phone. I remember this. I pick it up and it's this woman, Cheryl, who was Jay's assistant. And she goes, Natalie, Jay would like to speak to you. And I was like, oh my God, WTF. He gets on the phone. He goes, listen, I want you to come work for me. And I was like, uh, what? He's like, listen, this company is going nowhere. There's no market. He was right. We folded like two months after we couldn't raise money. He said, but this company is going nowhere. So, you know, it's going to go away, but I want you to work for me. No one ever talks to me that way. Like people cannot hold their ground with me and I love your spunk and I love that you stood up to me and I want you to come work for me. So you would think that my response would be, oh my God, what an amazing opportunity. Venture capital, I'm 22. No, 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 no. My response was, you know, Jay, I don't really know anything about Mr. Capital and I don't really like your attitude. So no thanks. Stop. And I hung up. <laughs> For reals. Stop. I hung I'm up. Dying. Yeah. yeah. This is a great like, story. Nah. <laughs> so six months go by, the startup folds and I need money. Avi and I, my husband and I, we're living in New York in a studio. We have like college loans. You know, we, I need a job. And, uh, like there isn't an apparent next job. So I decided to call back Jay Goldberg. So I call him back and, you know, get on the phone with him. And I say, Jay, remember me? I'm the 150% woman. And he's like, oh yeah. And I'm like, can I have my job now? And he's like, yep, I've been holding the office for you. I no need you to come back. way. And that is how I became a managing director at Hudson Ventures for five years in New York. Wow. Um, in venture capital. Wow. And, uh... Yeah, that's the story. So the lesson in the story is be yourself. Someone's giving you crap. Your only way through is be yourself. Uh, it may not work out, but then you know you were true to yourself. So yeah, true story. Lots of people like to recount it because there was a bunch of people in the room that I then ended up working with for um, five years. But that's how I became a venture capitalist. I think that is an amazing story and a great story to close on. I have a few quick fire questions. And also, I'd love to invite you back because there's so many topics 
I, one, like how you were able to be this driven woman in, in a, a, a marriage with longevity is really like mm, interesting. I'd love to, me. to talk about that. You know, um, I would love to talk so about that. There's just so much. Like, there's not enough. Let's do it. But the, Let's do part okay. two. Yes. Thank you. I would love a part two. So, the quick fire questions Who is a creator you think we should be following? It could be an author, it could be a podcaster, a YouTuber, a blogger. So one of the, the creators who inspires me with her openness and authenticity, her name is um, uh, Piera Giraldi. She's actually a founder of Refinery29. And um, she's got a really unique spark to her and real openness. And I always check out her Instagram first thing when I get on. And she's actually, can I just give her a total shout out? Because we're doing this big, awesome human day um, launch event for my book on February 8th. And she is coming to be part of it. She's going to do, she does this new thing called a dancercism, where it's like an hour dance and like let yourself go kind of thing. So she's coming to do a 10 minute segment. It's going to be awesome. But Pierre is a true awesome human, truly inspiring. Where can everybody find out about your event? Oh, yes, please go to nataliekogan.com. Um, you will see info about Awesome Human Day there. Um, and I just encourage everyone to subscribe to my email. I write it myself. There's never spam. There's just stuff like this and announcements or follow me on social. I'm at Natalie Kogan um, on all the places. February 8th, it's going to be virtual, 4 p.m. Eastern. I'm going to spill more secrets. Apollo Ono will be there, the amazing skater. We're going to talk about uh, courage. Um, Gonna be some more surprises. Uh, Jesse Hempel, who is the um, editor at large at LinkedIn and runs their amazing Hello Monday podcast, will be interviewing me. Wow! I'll be doing an interactive art experience, so you don't want to miss it. So, so yeah, cool. pre-order Awesome Human Project and come celebrate with and us. And that's N A T A L Y K O G A N. And so, last two quick fire questions: What is a book? It could be personal or professional that you recommend we read. Okay. This book I recommend more than my own books, and that says a lot. And it's called The Surrender Experiment mm. by Michael Singer. It Michael has been, Singer. I reread it every year. Such um, a good author. It's a, an incredible, an incredible book. So The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. And can you tell us a little bit about what it's about? It's about a story of how this economics PhD student who is doing really well in his PhD program has this moment where he realizes that there's this constant chatter in his brain and goes on a journey to try and pause the chatter um, by trying to give up life and become this meditator and instead turns out to found a $2 billion company, create one of the biggest meditation and yoga places on the world and become a spiritual teacher all by practicing surrender, which is the opposite of the passive surrender that we all think about. Wow. So cool. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing book. I truly, I think if you like go to my Amazon account, that's probably, I've bought it for more people that I've bought my own book for. I don't think that's a lie. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Wow. And your favorite tech tool, like your go-to tech tool, it could be like a mobile app or it could be a website, productivity. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the few things that I live on, uh, I love Todoist as my to-do app. So I'm a big, big, big fan. I love Pocket for recipes and interesting articles. Um, probably more recipes in there than articles, but I love to cook. It's kind of my love language. So um, I use Pocket to snap all the, to keep track of all the cool recipes and interesting things I read. And those are probably the two that are everywhere with me. And I'm going to share my newest find. You may like it too. It's called Shelpful. It's S-H-E-L-P-F-U-L.com. And essentially you get an accountability 
person who is just like texts you all day long, planning your day, making sure that you get done the things that are most important to you so that you could prioritize yourself. And oh my yeah, it's goodness. amazing. That's so fun. I'm going to have to check it out. What a great it's idea. And love then that. the last question, what piece of advice have you gotten that has really helped carry you through your career and accelerate you forward? What a great question. Well, um, I'm going to go to something that my teacher, um, Janet, when I was working with her for three years, said to me that uh, definitely doesn't sound like career advice, but I think it's one of the most important things that I try to practice that helps me is you're a being, not a doing. And if you think about it, it really connects to what you and I were talking about. If we just recognize that there's a lot of intrinsic value in our being, that it's our responsibility to get to know our being, to honor that being, because that being is affecting every other being. I think it's been one of the most important lessons for me, and I practice it every day. And I asked my daughter is 17. I can't believe I have a 17-year-old. She's amazing. She's my inspiration. All my books are dedicated to her. A couple of years ago, I asked her... Um, you know, I've been really open with her about my journey and it's kind of amazing to see the impact of it. And I said to her, you know, I, you know, we, we have a joke where like I turn things, some people, some parents turn things into a teachable moment. I turn things into TED Talks. That's our joke. <laughs> She's totally right. So I asked her a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, what's been like one of the most impactful things that you've heard from me? And she didn't hesitate for five seconds. She was like, you're a being, not a doing. And like, she just blurted out, like that's how true it was. And I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that, that she feels it and heard it from me and feels me practice it. And if it's one thing I can leave you all with, it's that. And I don't think we have a greater responsibility in the world than to get to know our being, to honor our being, to learn how to be in a supportive relationship with our being, because that impacts and affects so much more than any of our doing can. Wow. You've helped me so much in being brave enough, if that's even the right word, to share with me about labels and how to become, how to just be, actually, how to be, how to be, how, what's one thing we could all do, we have listeners around the world, to support and accelerate you and your success? Oh, what a beautiful question. Well, the thing that would be incredibly helpful is everyone checking out and pre-ordering my book, The Awesome Human Project. Not for me, not for sales numbers. It's actually a thing I don't know any sales numbers on my books. I asked my publisher when I started working with them. They're an amazing publisher. It sounds true. I said, I never want to know sales numbers because then I get into my ego head. I just want to focus on my bigger why. So I have no idea about sales numbers. So it's not for my sales numbers. But because what I am trying to do with this book is really launch a movement of all of us embracing our awesome human practicing these skills to do it and seeing and bringing out the goodness in each other. So that would be incredibly supportive of me if everyone could do that. And then you can pre-order for yourself or maybe someone you think needs it. Because I think we can all help create this shift from struggle and fear into embracing our awesome human. And it would mean the world to me if people did that. 100%. And I've already pre-ordered. So everybody that pre-orders and as we read it together, we could share our thoughts and exchange ideas together. Natalie, thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. To connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women around the world, be sure to go to the community, womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I'll see you guys, hear you guys, all the things in the next episode. Bye. Bye. 
Hey everyone, this is Natalie Kogan, the founder and CEO of Happier Inc., which is a company dedicated to helping you struggle less and thrive more by practicing science-backed emotional fitness skills based outside of Boston. And you're listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.